Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University in the heart of the cultural center of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, archivist at the Ruther Library, and I will be your host. Today's podcast is an interview with Dr. Julia Gunn. She is a critical writing fellow in the history of the University of Pennsylvania. Julia's research examines how progressive civil rights politics enable Charlotte, North Carolina to become the nation's second largest financial capital in the United States, while obscuring its rigidity towards working-class protest, including public sector and domestic workers. She came here to look through the collections of the SEIU, AFSCME, AFT, UAW, and CLUE, that is the Coalition of Labor Union Women, to expand her dissertation on the book. <laughs> Uh, Julia, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we were talking a couple days ago when we were agreed to do the podcast. Um, I had no idea what North Carolina is like in any kind of structure, especially Charlotte. Could you set up what the this, this state is like, what the city of Charlotte's like, so we can then just jump right into uh, your research? Sure. So uh, North Carolina, I think, is, is interesting in a few different ways. One, it's been the least unionized state in the country for the better part of the last century. At the same time, um, you know, Charlotte has become the second largest banking center in the country. And so it's become this major center of finance. Um, and Charlotte has also, in the last 50, 60 years, gained a reputation for being uh, among the more racially moderate southern cities in terms of its stance on civil rights issues. So the city peacefully desegregated public spaces. Um, in the 70s, it became a model for school desegregation. And then in the 80s, it elected the first uh, black mayor from a large southern white majority city so you know it's it's gained a certain reputation for being progressive on civil rights issues and so you know a big part of my project came out of trying to square these two different phenomena so being uh, not so progressive on uh, labor issues and then being rather progressive on civil rights issues and so what that um, means for the city's politics and growth and development and social movements and social justice issues. All right. You are going into a territory of labor history, urban history, social history, dealing with public employee unions, which has not been hugely researched at all. There's been a few, but um, especially really nothing in the South. So how did you come across this project to get involved with public employees in the South of all places? Yeah. So, um, you know, in, in trying to... So I guess I'll, I'll take a step back. So when I first started this project and talked to a few local librarians and archivists in Charlotte, you know, when I said I was interested in looking at Charlotte's labor history, they were like, oh, there isn't any, you know, beyond the textile mills, which which makes sense. And in a way, that's not untrue if you look at the sources that are available in Charlotte. So, um, you know, I really had to go all over the region and the country to sort of capture the city's labor history. And so in in trying to piece together the history of labor activism in Charlotte, it became pretty clear that by the 60s, public workers were, you know, at the forefront of 
labor activism in the city, whether it was sanitation workers or bus drivers or firefighters. Um, I'm here in part looking at teachers. You know, they really were, and, and a couple of other scholars who've worked on public worker unions, Joe McCartan and others have, have argued, and I think it's it's right that, that public sector workers were, you know, really the militant vanguard of uh, labor activism in a lot of cities, and that's what I'm finding in in Charlotte. You know, there's been some work done, McCartan's done work on Atlanta, uh, Michael Honey's done work on Memphis, but there's still not not a lot done given how visible and active public workers were. So yeah, that's kind of you know, in, in trying to recapture what the story of the labor movement was in Charlotte, it just became really obvious that you can't tell that story without looking at public sector workers. Now, we were talking about this a couple of days ago. Why Why do you think that is? Why do you think there has been an absence of uh, researchers going in and looking at the public worker, the public employees union, teacher unions, AFSCME? They're leaving it vacant, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I don't know the answer to that, and it's something I've struggled with. I don't think it's inherently, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure, but it's something that I've found. There's not a lot of work on public sector workers, that it's hard to get people sort of, you know, excited about these stories, even though, you know, I think there's a lot there. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer <laughs> to it, but it's, it's too bad because you can't tell this story in the post-war era and to try to tell the story of the labor movement in the last 50 years without putting public workers at the front. You know, if you look at the Chicago teachers, you, you know, various teachers unions, various other unions um, of public sector workers, you can't tell the story without public workers. So I don't know. And that's, um, you know, I don't have a good answer to that. But I think that's a perfect answer because <laughs> I don't think there is an answer. Really, yeah. I've been trying to rack myself on that as well. And one other thing I should add is North Carolina has been interesting to look at, too because uh, public sector workers are banned from collective bargaining. So the state passed a law in 1959 banning public sector workers from bargaining. Uh, and at the time, it banned firefighters outright from, from unionizing at all. And that part of the law was overturned a decade later. But the ban on public sector bargaining has stayed intact. And so, you know, in, a, in, a, in some ways, seems like North Carolina paved a path for the direction states seem to be going, right, in terms of pushing back against public sector bargaining rights. You know, Michigan and Wisconsin become right-to-work states, which was unimaginable a couple of decades ago. So looking at how, uh, you know, how unions and how especially public sector unions work in hostile climates has been interesting to me to try to figure out what you do when you don't have the sort of infrastructure and legal support that you do in other states. So what you bring up a good point. The The collective bargaining bill, was it the 95-98, right? Yep. Um, banned firemen, fire workers, firemen. Um, it, was, it was firemen at the time. Yeah, at the time, right, exactly. Um, ban, ban them, which has amazed me that usually they don't touch the police and fire, but they did. So you were saying that it's a unique situation where they worked with the laws and worked with ways to get some sort of bargaining. How did they get from being banned completely to, what was it, the, um, the Atkins decision? 
what kind of things did they do? Was it grassroots organizing? Was it bringing in people? Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, I've done some interviews with firefighters in Charlotte, and in terms of sort of what they were thinking and the, the choices they made in terms of trying to get this ban overturned, I think, you know, a couple of um, interviews, uh, former firefighters in Charlotte talk about actually seeing uh, civil rights activists use the courts to to get restrictive laws overturned. And so in Charlotte, and I think this is a really interesting story, it was still an all-white firefighters union. Um, and if anything, the clashes between the city and firefighters was really along class lines. The fire, you know, firefighters in Charlotte were predominantly from working class backgrounds. Many came from mill families and city leaders were more, you know, middle class, downtown types. Um, but anyways, the firefighters in Charlotte hired, uh, you know, in an effort to get this ban overturned, which they rightly saw as unconstitutional, um, they hired the state's, or one of the state's leading civil rights attorneys, Julius Chambers, who is more well known for litigating Swan v. Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, which was, um, you know, a landmark school busing case. Um, so, it was, you know, kind of interesting that they hired, you know, one of the state's leading civil rights attorneys as an all-white firefighters union to try to, uh, and successfully at least repeal part of the ban. So it's kind of an interesting moment in civil rights history, labor history, uh, you know, and, Ch and uh, Chambers talks about it in, in subsequent interviews when he was actually um, being nominated to, I think it was a, an appellate court position when he had to, in this long interview process, he was asked which were the three most important cases of his career, and Atkins was one of them. Um, and it's really just not a well-known case other than people outside of, uh, you know, labor folks in Charlotte and in the state um, and, and labor historians. But it's not, you know, it doesn't have nearly the, the name recognition of Swan or something like that. So anyways, this is kind of an interesting moment in the late 60s in Charlotte history. Now, I'm sure the Chamber of Commerce was not happy about this. Nope. So, and what was, I'm trying to remember the guy's name who pretty much led the whole anti-unionism in Charlotte. Duh, um, he had a company. And yeah, Ed Dowd from, was. Um, he's, he's interesting, he's a character. Man. He yeah. is. Yeah. And, and it seemed like he laid the groundwork for this um, ethos in Charlotte that we will not be a union town at all. Yeah, he, I would say he was, uh, led a local employers, or the local employers association, which kind of along with the Chamber of Commerce became the uh, voice of business in the city. And so the city had always, or not always, but it, you know, at least in the 20th century, it had a, um, and, and certainly by the mid 20th century, it had a very powerful chamber of commerce. Uh, and there's this great quote from um, one of the Charlotte newspapers. It's something along the lines of, uh, our town isn't one by, run by one man, um, it's run by the Chamber of Commerce, and, and we're proud of that fact, right? And so the, everybody sort of rallied around the, the Chamber of Commerce, which they saw as sort of the spearhead of, of development and of keeping unions at bay. And then so that coupled with Ed Dowd, uh, you know, they were really sort of the voice of business and very openly 
um, hostile to organized labor because the, the Chamber of Commerce was involved in passing the public sector bargaining ban in 59. Um, and then, you know, Dowd was always sort of at the forefront of speaking out against, you know, any, the, any public forum where, uh, you know, city council meeting or anything along those lines where union issues came up. Ed Dowd was always there to uh, speak out against organized labor, which was interesting to me because it was never very, or at least, you know, at mid-century was not powerful in the city. So it seemed always kind of like this, at least in looking back on this period, always like a very disproportionate response to a very weak labor movement. Just making sure they yeah. don't make a move at yeah. all. Because when I was reading your dissertation, you mentioned that um, they, they actually banned, they, that banned, they, they didn't allow Xerox to come in. They didn't allow um, Miller to come in, yeah. Miller Brewery, because they were union shops yeah. and they would raise the wages. Yeah. But what's interesting, though, is like how Dowd mm-hmm. managed to convince them, not the companies, but the, the, the um, Chamber of Commerce and the legislators there, that we don't have to take an attack method, but a passive aggressive yeah. movement, which seems to be happening throughout the whole country currently. Yeah. So this is goes back to what you're talking about. Charlotte was this this epicenter, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. That that we're seeing all across the country today. Yeah. Oh, dear lord. <laughs> <laughs> One of the stories I was fascinated though by really was um I love your story, The Domestics United. Mm-hmm. It harkens today what's going on with uh, Rock and the other domestics uh, associations that are popping up all over the place and have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. But this story, mm-hmm. could you could you tell us the story about Domestics United? Yeah, so um, Domestics United was an effort by domestic workers in Charlotte to uh, – they never called themselves a union, but to do many of the things that a union would do. So, you know, to try to – Organized um, for better wages, for things like sick days, vacation, holiday days, potentially for childcare, um, and and the effort was funded in part by the North Carolina Fund, which was a precursor to uh, the War on Poverty, and so it was funded in part by um, state and then federal dollars to sort of. Im- you know, improve the conditions of some of the very lowest paid and most vulnerable workers in uh, Charlotte. So, you know, predominantly black women working in white households. So there's a certain, a particular kind of vulnerability, right, as a domestic or as a worker in in, in that sort of setting. Um, so, yeah, they, uh, you know, it was a fairly small organization, but, um, you know, a couple of really devoted and and charismatic women uh, organizers. I don't know if they would call themselves that, but that's what they were doing. Um, And it's just interesting seeing the tightrope that the organization walked in terms of trying to really do the things that a union would do, but never calling themselves a union. And I think they were probably pretty attentive to the, the climate that they were operating in but I think obviously hindsight's 2020 but you know in reading back through the records it that you know the organization eventually dissolved and 
you know, it's it's interesting to kind of wonder if they if they try to pursue a affiliation with any kind of larger union or, or something along those lines if they'd been able to sustain themselves. But, you know, we can we can never know. But it was kind of this interesting moment that really highlights, to me at least, uh, the the limitations of civil rights rhetoric and ideas in Charlotte. So the city that really uh, prided itself on being progressive on civil rights issues uh, that came to a screeching halt when it meant uh, black women demanding decent pay as domestic workers. So when it came to these sorts of economic demands um, or demands that were going to directly affect, uh, you know, the white employers who employed domestic workers, that the the tone was a little bit different. Everything just shifted immediately. Yeah. Um, classic. Basically, it, it reminds me kind of since they got funding for what was the Carolina fund, the North Carolina fund. It sounded like similar to uh, the paraprofessionals in uh, getting Title One money, mm -hmm. and the same thing: low pay, no recognition. Uh, majority um, black women and Latino women, Latina women, mm -hmm. um, getting no respect. Yeah. And once they wanted empowerment. Everybody backed off or said, you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then, but, but the paras, they organized. Yeah. Asked me and uh, the teachers were banging on the doors to get them as members and it worked out. Um, so, yeah. go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, I was just going to add, you know, the, the other interesting piece of this is, is the one big accomplishment of, of the organization was they did a survey of workers. And so it was interesting for two reasons. One, like a lot of war on poverty programs, one of the biggest outcomes was that the program itself became uh, a major employer for black women. So actually conducting the survey um, and being involved in the survey became an alternative to doing domestic work, right? And so, but the other interesting part is the findings of the survey were that overwhelmingly, so the survey included questions like, um, you know, do you get sick days? Um, do you, you know, how do you, do you like your work? Do you want to stay in this type of job? You know, you know, just questions about what the work was like, what kinds of things uh, worker, domestic workers most wanted changed. And, and overwhelmingly, the finding of the survey was people did not want to stay in this line of work. So, um, you know, I think that's interesting in a lot of it, ways. Is that when they started uh, more training? Yeah. Um, yeah, trying to sort of professionalize, exactly. you know, doing CPR training, doing other childcare training. And that was sort of the direction that Domestics United went in. And I think that certainly appealed to some women. Um, but the survey at least revealed that despite that, or, you know, um, yeah, despite that, um, many women just wanted a different line of work. It wasn't a fun job. No. And where the Back to my analysis, like the paraprofessionals, there was training, but they were tied more into their community mm -hmm. where my kid goes to that school. I want to be in that school to see my child right? or work within my community to make a better men's school. This is where black women coming from that side of town, yeah. going to work at a white woman's house. Yeah. What tie is there? Yeah. So, so it was an inevitable to be some sort of like, I'm not going to work 
I don't want to work here at all. Yeah. Interesting. That's what I loved about the story. I saw a lot of parallels going on mm-hmm. at the same time, especially in the late 60s. Um, so, yeah, Charlotte is considered that a uh, progressive city. Um, as you mentioned, Mayor Mayor Gantz, uh, it's became it has become the largest banking place uh, outside New York City, mm-hmm. right? Integration all up and down uh, for many years. Um, it's the classic uh, domestic neoliberal city. Uh, how do you account for a, a such a star city of the South, um, but so far away from social justice for its workers? Especially now that we have Moral Mondays going on in North mm-hmm. Carolina. I know. Um, it seems like such juxtaposition going on. Well, and on. the Moral Monday, I really see it more as coming out of sort of a long social justice tradition in the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area, which politically has been very different uh, than Charlotte, which is just sort of always wanting to march forward, you know, and sort of ignore what may have happened in the past. and. That creates problems when you're thinking about historical injustices and historical inequality. So, you know, the Moral Monday, um, yeah, I know that that wasn't the main part of your question. <laughs> you know, I see it as kind of a bright light right now in uh, in in North Carolina. And, and also that gets at, at, you know, it is an interesting state and a state that in a lot of ways I think really is kind of a microcosm of American politics. You have, you know, very progressive social justice traditions, um, you know, of biracial organizing, of really radical uh, civil rights histories and that sort of thing. But you also have Charlotte and you also have textile mills and, and this long history of, of uh, repression and, um, you know, anti-union activism led by both, yeah, really coming from various business communities all over the state. And I think uh, Charlotte has kind of been more in that vein. And I see, you know, I think that a, a big part of Charlotte's position on civil rights issues comes from working to attract business. And Charlotte's always been very aware of itself as kind of in Atlanta's shadow and trying to become a first-rate city on its own and to not be confused with Charlottesville or Charleston or all of these other cities that sound similar and for people who haven't spent any time in the South can't keep them straight. And so to really try to put itself on the map as a, you know, not some backwater Southern city. And, you know, to some extent it, it, it successfully did that. Um, you know, it's grown tremendously. It's a very different kind of city than it was 60 years ago in a way that, you know, some cities in the deep South are not, you know, as fundamentally different, but I think there are limitations when the business community is really at the fore of steering local politics. So it, it sort of limits the, the types of, um, commitments you see in the city. Yeah. Um, okay. We'll get away from the history part, but I really want to know, you've been coming here for so long to the Ruther <laughs> Library. Uh, we should have a, a chair in your name here. No. Um, can you tell me what, any kind of like, um, I don't know, I guess a gee whiz when you're going through the papers here that stands out? I know that's put you on the spot there for that one. A gee whiz. Um... You're going through boxes and boxes of there's the letter, there's the report. 
Yeah, I found, um, I mean, it, kind of what I was saying earlier, I mean, the interesting thing about Charlotte labor history is is uh, none of it's in Charlotte. So it's been kind of a treasure hunt, first figuring out where stuff is. And there's a lot of stuff here that's not necessarily in obvious places. So in uh, collect in union collections that weren't even necessarily powerful unions in Charlotte, but finding stuff buried in um, the SEIU collections or this visit, I'm looking at stuff in the AFT uh, collections. Um, Chi whiz, I don't know. Um, I did find, uh, yeah, as far as, sorry, you'll have to add You know that what? Out. It basically is <laughs> your research has been it's building. You look at yeah. everything, you're building it into like one gigantic thing. I know. Thing. I feel like I should just create a catalog for where Charlotte labor history is <laughs> because it's not obvious. I mean, a lot, I mean, granted, a lot is, a lot is in the, bigger labor archives. So a lot's here, a lot's at the Southern Labor Archives in Atlanta, but there's stuff really all over the place. And so, you know, trying to to piece it together. Thank you for doing this podcast with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Julia was awarded the Sam Fishman Travel Grant for 2017. The Fishman Grant provides up to $1,000 to support travel to the Ruther Library to use archival records related to the American labor movement. The award is in, in honor of Sam Fishman, a former UAW and Michigan AFL-CIO leader. We give out about five to six a year, so if you're interested, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glagner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, Paul Nearing, and Mary Wallace. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. All right, just so you know, this is Dan Glodner from the deep down inside the bowels of the Roth Ruther Library, coming to you live with some interesting love songs for you.